Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. In the southern end of Seattle, nestled between railroad lines and the massive runway of Boeing Field, lies the neighborhood of Georgetown. This is a neighborhood that has conserved its early to mid-20th century feel. It's saturated with traditional red brick buildings such as the massive Rainier Brewery, along with a tangle of old hotels, saloons, and remnants of a rusty industrial past. Within this neighborhood lies the Conservatory, a Seattle coffee house that is somewhat different from the mental image that a Seattle coffee house might conjure up immediately. The Conservatory describes itself as, quote, a cafe, a center of learning, and an artist community, inspired by the European coffee houses of the 1800s. We aim to foster a place for artists to learn, share, create, and enjoy an espresso, end quote. Carlos Paradinha Jr. joins us today. Carlos is the owner and operator of the conservatory. He is also a fine art and commercial photographer and a model. Carlos, great to have you here today. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. I think I gave folks a very brief summary of who you are. Uh, could you give us a little background about you, where your path in life has taken you, and what was your motivation for creating a space such as a conservatory? Well, I got here in Seattle back in 2008. My path has been mostly military. I spent uh, 25 years as a sailor on the East Coast, so mostly European theater, uh, Middle Eastern, South America. Back even farther, I graduated high school in 81. My dad, I remember, was a photographer. He did like a lot of his uh, fine art uh, fashion shoots and cooked all the stuff in the bathroom. So a, a, he had his dark room in the bathroom. So I remember a lot of things hanging there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I got my passion for photography, where I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts right here in Seattle back in uh, 2014. Art has always been a huge part of my life, either drawing or writing or photography. It's been a passion. Art has all sorts of varied forms. I was never much of a performer. I didn't do plays or whatnot. I was kind of like uh, shy on stage. Mm -hmm. But other forms of art I dabbled in. I came up here with, uh, with a partner. We had a, a shop, which we called a shop, uh, a, a coffee shop down in, in Austin, Texas. But uh, Austin is not a very huge coffee-cultured city. You know, it, it may be growing that way now, but when we were there back in 06, it wasn't so much. Hmm. So when we took over the, that cafe down there, we, we brought art in. And that kind of planted a seed that took a, a long time to germinate up here. But uh, once we came up here, we ended up moving to Georgetown, which was amazingly perfect. You know, the space is exactly what we were looking for in the concept that we were trying to attain. And that concept is ever growing. It's, it, you know, you read what our description is, but no building is ever called a built. It's always a building because it's never built. There's always something new being brought in. It's being changed. It's always building. And this is the way we've, we're looking at our business structure. I think it was Michelangelo that uh, stated it best. It's like art is never finished, only discarded. Mm. Because there's always more you can do to it. You know, like, oh, I've, I could have changed the color. Or uh, it needs another pen stroke here. Or it needs a couple more words in this one sentence or whatever. The, the conservatory itself is a work of art. So we're constantly massaging it and making it better. When we first opened it up, it was mostly just a studio. You know, it was it was meant for 
us to create artwork for gaming companies. But yeah, we, we've been trying to foster a, a very community-driven art space where people can come in and instead of like staring at a laptop, you know, they actually converse. And I found that. I mean, I'm there almost every day. And every day that I'm at the conservatory, I see people just conversing, having meetings, just chatting, going on dates, mm-hmm. you know, and having a coffee date at our shop, which is phenomenal and sweet. And now we're we're opening it up to uh, more performance. We've got a couple of burlesque shows that are now anchored at the conservatory. We have the Seattle Playwright Salon that meets there monthly. Um, we do art sessions every Sunday, and it just keeps developing and going forward. It's interesting that you mention, and, and it's right, it's a building, not a built, and you keep evolving over time, and that's true. But I think I'll, I'll challenge you a little bit, and given the aesthetic of the place, mm. the design choices you've made, how you've described yourself online and in other places, there's certainly a, a concept that you have in mind that remains steady, even mm-hmm. though it evolves over time. How would you describe the concept of the kind of space that you are trying to create with the conservatory? It might shift over time, sure. and people coming in might add their own character and angle, right. but what is the essence of the conservatory? What is the vision for it? We're looking at it as Tim Burton meets your eccentric great-uncle who is like in his 90s, and that's his study. It's, it's very brick. The building itself was finished back in 1903, so the the actual bricks that you can see there were from the 1800s. They kind of emote a spirit of their own. People come in just to remark on how beautiful the bricks and how what did we do to treat the bricks to make them look like that? And it's it's natural. It's just they're amazing. Well, let me go back a little bit for the the history of the conservatory itself. The last time it was permitted by the city of Seattle was March of 1945. That was the last legal permit that was drawn on it that I could fish out of the archives of Seattle. But we have taken out layers and layers of years of people just covering up things that were there in the past. The brick wall is one of them. We've uncovered the original floor that was underneath a quarter inch of paint from the valve shop that used to be there. It used to be the Star Brassworks Mm. uh, building. The space itself had to be cleared out of a couple of those big containers of debris. A lot of that debris we repurposed. We took many of the rafters and made the tables that that people enjoy sitting at and the bar area that uh, we create our espresso drinks from. Um, Also the bar in front where people like look out into the, you know, the area and people watch that was all repurposed from demolition time. So we uncovered a lot of the the old that you've seen when you've gone there and others see when they go there. Uh, we purposely made it a little darker. We use Edison bulbs in our lighting, even though we have above, we have um, brighter, it's 15 foot ceilings. Mm-hmm. They're massive. So you need light. And we're using energy efficient uh, LEDs for the lighting above, but the more intimate lighting is uh, all Edison bulbs to harken back to the day keep it more comfortable and also very engaging. It feels more intimate. And that's exactly what we'd like to foster in there for our artists, because a lot of them are very shy. Many artists are very introverted. 
And so they like to have their private space when they do their artwork. And in so creating the space, there are several little nooks where people can go and draw out their work using reference. We have reference books there for people and whatnot. So, And, and that's something that really struck me, um, not just the brick, which... By the way, I completely understand what you mentioned because when I go in there, there's something almost glowing or incandescent about the bricks themselves that, that yeah, adds amazing. character to it. But something that struck me is the the choices you made when it came to arranging tables. It's different from a lot of coffee houses where a lot of coffee houses might want to maximize the amount of table area so that they can have as many customers as possible. You don't seem to be that concerned with maximizing the amount of tables and chairs in order to have people in there. There are those those rooms to be, to lay out, to extend yourself in the space, to have a group of two or three sit in a corner and be, you know, 10 feet away from other folks. So is that a, a conscious choice not to overstuff the place with, with too much stuff? Yes, Eric, it was. But, uh, the, the reason for that was we figured we would have more transient types that would come in just for a coffee and go back to work. There aren't many people that live in that area of Airport Way South. It's mostly businesses. So people come in, they grab their coffee, they go back to their to their workspace. Sometimes they bring their workspace to us. And it's like, I can't stand my spot right now. Is it okay if I just hang out with you for a while? Perfectly fine. I've had people, what I call camp out with me for hours at a time to do their work. And they leave actually more refreshed from doing their work than they would have been in their own space. And that's exactly why we're there. You know, that's exactly, they leave inspired. You know, I've had people come in and create things where it's like, if it, I'm so glad you guys are here because I wouldn't have done this anywhere else. I mean, we get consistent, awesome feedback. And that's, that's the part of the community that I really enjoy is that repartee. You know, that, that back and forth mm -hmm. between us and our customers. And yeah, we do have limited seating and we've gotten feedback from that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I wish, you know, they would get more chairs or more tables. It's like, eventually, mm -hmm. you know, we're working on doing something because we, we do performances there. So to have too many tables and chairs, then we have to store them somewhere. And that then detracts from space. So we have to be creative with our own space. Yeah. And it's it's a paradox in a way because a lot of uh, modern coffee houses want to maximize that space to have as many people as possible. Sure. But the negative space that you're creating adds a certain atmosphere as well. Not having too many people around me, around others, people can congregate in an almost private space within the conservatory. If you add, there's a paradox, if you add more tables, you're going to lose some of that that atmosphere in a way, though there will come a time maybe while you're, yeah. you'll need to do that. So it's, it's a paradox that you need to, to fight with. There's this urban theory, or it's a sociologist, I don't remember his or her name, but I will add a link to the article accompanying this podcast, that argued that we always seek the third space. There is the home space, there's the workspace, but human beings are seeking always that comfortable third space in between. So if you think of barbershops, for some people, yeah. that's the third space. Yeah. Others, it might be a library. Yeah. But coffee houses really inhabit that third space for, Big for a lot of folks. Especially here. Yeah, we have a huge coffee culture. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've stated it so many times. It's like, in Seattle, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a coffee shop somewhere. You know, and I've gone through so many awesome coffee shops in the city where, you know, even though I have my own and I love our coffee and I think we have the best coffee in the city, I will go out 
you know, as a coffee snob and visit other coffee shops. I adore doing that. I adore seeing what other people are doing, you know, and, and how they're being creative and how they're using their business model to have that coffee culture in the city be uh, a gem, you know, for the city. I mean, it's a facet of that emerald here in, in Seattle, you know, between the, the artwork that they inspire or that they bring to their audience, which is their coffee drinkers. Some of them would never be exposed to that art if it wasn't for the coffee shop. I, I think that's enormous, you know, especially for the artists. And I was going to ask, you know, as, as you said, Seattle is known to be a, a center of coffee culture. And how does a conservatory fit in that tradition? And, and were you worried that you would just be another Seattle coffee house that adds to the scene? And how are you different? Because when I look at you, you certainly have a point of, of difference. It's almost like a a 19th century speakeasy feel to yeah. it, which I don't oh, cool. see at many other places. I don't know if that's yeah. an accurate I don't know. representation. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. I know. It's, yeah. it's terrific. Um, and we do have a storefront, uh, a nice window area that the, the building owner looked back at some of the old photographs from the, the early 1900s and tried to mimic as best he could with modern materials to create that aesthetic of bringing back the old feel of the place. I mean, we mixed our own stain for the floor, you know, to make it more appropriate for the space. So when it wears, it wears with this awesome patina that is unique to the space's character and how it's being used. It's a living space. We purposefully took our limited knowledge of coffee and pushed our own envelope. We were approached by a local roaster to uh, to sell their coffee in our space, and we did so for quite a long time. Uh, a new roaster came into town, uh, actually in Soto, so just one district over, and offered us our own blend, which we have. And I told our customers that we were changing blends. you know. And just like anything, when you're used to something, people are, are kind of skittish about change. Americans in particular, they do not like change. Nobody likes change around here. So when I said we're changing, that's almost like a cuss word, you mm -hmm. know, change is horrible. But I got so much awesome feedback from the, from the roaster that we have now that we completely quit our, you know, original roaster and we're going with what we have. So our coffee is kind of like a bit of a binder for what we do. It kind of like greases skids. It also is part of a, a glue. So it's a grease and a glue together in a one thing. We have a really good rapport with the owner of the roastery that we're using right now that uh, I, I don't think – I I'd never found it anywhere else. You mm -hmm. know, it's it's such a, a, a personal rapport, you know, and we're business. It's a business rapport, but it's so – a personal business rapport if you can actually put those two things together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let me veer a little yeah, bit into, into another topic. And I want to go back to, to how you describe the conservatory and in your site – you mentioned that the conservatory was inspired by the European coffee houses of the 1800s. Mm -hmm. What are some of those physical, cultural, or emotional characteristics of that 1800s European coffee house culture that, that appeals to you and is exhibited in the conservatory? Well, as I mentioned before, Eric, is, is that we have people that come into the shop and they hold their meetings there. There were architects that came in that were designing a place in Georgetown a new apartment complex that they were that were building. They came into our shop to lay out their plans and, you know, actually pour over them. We have other architects that come in and they roll out these huge plans. The artists come in and they talk about their concepts for 
books that they're creating. We have uh, the art directors of gaming companies that come in and talk about and actually use the space for their concept art. So like the coffee shops of back in the day when artists would get together to discuss not only, and we've had political, sometimes heated political discussions in, in, in the shop where, you know, people are talking about the climate of, uh, you know, Republican, Democrat, Independent or whatever. To, as a caveat, we are completely apolitical. We allow any discussion. We are not tolerant of anything. We are accepting of pretty much any idea as long as they're not hurtful to anybody else. So in that spirit, we foster uh, that same type of old world community gathering space where people feel empowered to speak about whatever they, they'd like to or create whatever they, they'd like to. I mean, we have skulls and bones and dead bugs and things that inspire people to create both fantasy and science fiction artwork that bring that old world uh, aesthetic into the space. We have books that were published back in the early 1900s for people to peruse, you know, not kept under wraps where they're like museum pieces, but they're actually still physically capable of reading them, you know, even though they're the poor things, some of them are falling apart. But that's the purpose of these things is to be used, to be enjoyed while they exist and not just kept in a museum or something mm -hmm. to be gawked at and, and never looked at again. Yeah, I think uh, an interesting concept that is associated with coffee houses of the 1800s and, and intellectual gatherings is, is often referred to as a salon. And I think uh, the main concept or one of the properties of a salon is that its salon is a showcase. It exhibits not just objects, but points of view, people, movements, etc. And yeah. I think the way you have organized the space by not overstuffing it, by having these aesthetic objects, it's the the confluence of many different people coming in to showcase their work or yeah. showcase their initial thinking or their sketches or the seeds of initial thoughts yeah. that then bounce around other people and then emerge into something more fully formed. Yeah. So I think it that's what I'm taking out of um your response, the the coffee house culture of the 1800s was really about that sort of intellectual ferment mm -hmm. going on, about people being able to go in there with, with half-baked ideas, bounce them against other people, and then right. come out stronger with it. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly what's 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 been happening lately is is a lot of you know we've we've been getting a lot of people coming in that are actually creating real things. It's not just you know conceptual work, but they're they're taking actual things that they're going to be creating and using our space to solidify those things, which is completely amazing to me. And talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned a little bit of the programming, the events that you're having in the space, yeah. and it looks like it's growing more and more, yeah. but could you give us maybe two or three tangible examples of events that are happening or sure. have happened in the space so people can get a sense of. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, right now, uh, actually this past Friday, we had our inaugural a boylesque show that we did that was with uh, Emperor Fabulous and uh, Marquis Facade uh, teaming together. Uh, it was amazingly terrific. Uh, the gentleman did a superb job. Burlesque is starting to slowly take root in our space. 
I was told that uh, Georgetown is more of a punk metal area. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, bringing a burlesque theme with uh, darker 1800s, 1900s vaudevillian, you know, early 30s vaudevillian kind of thing or an older theme has been well-received. Mm-hmm. You know, even with our punk metal crowd, which is amazing. One that has been a an anchor now within the space uh, is La Petite Mort's anthology of uh, Erotica Esoterica. And that's, like I stated, has been going on for the last 13 months. Um, her last show is going to be this month. Next month, she starts her new anthology at the end of the month. Every last Friday is her day, which is uh, a staple. If you have not seen one of her shows, it's it's imperative. You, it you, it should be on your bucket list. Mm-hmm. And we will add links to to these troops in, oh, in the article yeah. accompanying this. It's beautiful stuff. She's just they're. T- I I'm stuttering because they're so talented. I can't even come up with the right words. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have speaking of salons, we have our Seattle Playwright Salon that meets in the space once a month, and people can come in for free. They they do their readings. Uh, one of the plays that were performed at the conservatory is now going off Broadway, so that's really cool. So there's there's that, and every Sunday, every Sunday so far without fail. We've had either a long or short pose art session. Um, we have models available, and they pose for you. It, they're they're clothed, so they are usually a fantasy or, or science fiction themed costuming, and then off you go. You know, painting or sketching, digital gouache, pencils, pens. It doesn't matter as long as you use well because you've been to the space. It's kind of smaller. Mm-hmm. We don't allow turpentines because it'll completely knock people out so mm-hmm. low odor terps and linseed oil so every once in a while it smells like you know linseed in there it's terrific it's amazing more people have been coming back over and over and really uh, making the conservatory their home for their art so that's that's been amazing and, and that dovetails into a hypothesis that i wanted to explore with you and i suspect that you're going to agree with this hypothesis <laughs> given the the nature of this conversation and i want to explore how the public space of the coffee house has changed over time and roughly i want to explore this hypothesis where in the 19th and early 20th century and even in the mid 20th century if you think about the beat generation mm-hmm. coffee houses were spaces that were more social, they were unabashedly intellectual, unashamedly intellectual and artistic movements and individuals could set up shop mm-hmm, in these places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But somewhere in the late 20th to early 21st century, coffee houses, whether it's the, the result of excessive capitalism and industrialization, mm-hmm. just became spaces where people could be insular, where they could connect to Wi-Fi and continue their participation in a capitalist production machinery mm-hmm. and basically create their own bubble mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. which they could just work in someone else's living room. Are you sensing a backlash or some kind of resistance against an always on, always connected, but isolated existence? Or are you, even if you're not sensing it, you're backlashing against that or some way, or you don't have that kind of um, manifesto? Yeah, <laughs> in no, mind? well, the thing is, I think we have an eclectic enough crowd of people where. It mixes exceedingly well. We've got people that come in and all they do is they they just get their coffee. They find out what our Wi-Fi password is and they plug in and they go to town and they work, you know, and they work and they work. They put headphones on and they just do their work. And that's amazing. It That means that they are comfortable enough in our space to do their work. They're not being sidetracked or distracted from that. 
Then again, on the converse side of that coin, we've got people that come in just to chat. They actually turn off their phones. They put them in their coat pockets or in their purses or whatever, in their pouches, and they sit and they look each other in the eye mm. and speak. There's a uh, greater amount of that than there is the plugging in. And, you know, having that Wi-Fi now, we are in the 21st century. And maybe back in the 1800s, their Wi-Fi was just having a paper constantly around. You know, the latest newspaper had mm -hmm. to be in the shop, you know, so then people can get their latest news or whatnot. Nowadays, the newspaper physically is almost gone, you know, and we have Wi-Fi for news. And that's why we have that. So, yeah, we're plugged into the 21st century because we have to be, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes down to it, brass tacks, we have to pay our rent, you know. Um, and so that that capitalist edge to it is it's underlying. It's always the current because it's like, you know, we're not in a a society where we can just trade coffee for rent. It's still the dollar. You know, we have to. And, it's, and it is about the Benjamins when it comes down to it. But we want to make that as invisible as possible, where people don't really see that we're, you know, we're there for the money because it, it's, it's not about that. The money will come. It, it, it's like the movie, you know, if you build it, they will come. And we've built a space where people can come and just enjoy it. And this byproduct of that is they buy a little bit of coffee and every little bit helps. Every coffee that is bought, every time somebody comes in and spends $10 for the model, you know, on a Sunday for three hours, that helps. And at the end of it, we pay our rent. Mm -hmm. We do that. We do that. We do it again next month and we, we keep going and it just yeah. keeps going. And I think my hypothesis was less to do about your <laughs> yeah. financial needs and more about <laughs> what a, a capitalist mindset does to people who need to come into coffee houses oh. and just isolate themselves and not engage in that yeah. kind of interaction with others, which you see that in certain coffee houses yes. because they are designed in a very modular way and it doesn't facilitate that kind of interaction. Your space, completely different. Right. Course. And that's why we did what we did. And that's why we did keep it to a smaller amount of people in the, in the shop. We have a big, long meeting table that I built, you know, and we have the smaller cafe tables that I built. Those smaller cafe tables are intimate. You know, they're made that way on purpose. The long table is for gaming or I don't see people for the most part just putting themselves in a cone of silence just to do their work, just to use us as their mm -hmm. office away from their office. Right. You know, they do use us for meeting uh, other clients and whatnot, but in so doing, they're engaging in conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, they're exchanging ideas. They're formulating their own creativity mm -hmm. and this brings me when I, I mean when i looked at your beautiful space and when i was thinking about the the concept of coffee houses in, in preparation for this episode there's a book called where good ideas come from the natural history of innovation by stephen johnson mm. and he spends some time arguing that many of the most important and influential ideas in history were not the result of lone geniuses having eureka moments mm -hmm. but rather uh, that these ideas developed as the way he calls it, slow hunches. Mm. They're half-formed notions that people carry with them mm -hmm. and then gain momentum and clarity as people bump and engage with each other in public spaces and ideas get remixed. And he actually argued 
that great coffee houses in history, that great tradition was instrumental with many of these moments, whether it's scientific, literary, etc. And here I have a quote. Let me just quote him quickly. Quote, if you look at the long view, the good ideas that underlie most of the great changes in our society that have driven progress more often than not actually have roots in the open kind of information commons of a university or the British coffee house. In those environments, ideas are free to connect with each other and build on top of each other. That remixing is really where great ideas happen. So what you're creating is is that space for remixing, yeah. for that just almost you know, promiscuity of ideas yeah. to just get in there oh, and yeah. clash in an aesthetically beautiful environment. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're seeing with our current climate, you know, political and geopolitical climates is that we're creating what people are calling echo chambers. People just get with groups that agree with them and just talk the same talk to each other. They might as well just be looking in a mirror and talking to themselves because everybody agrees. Oh, yes, yes. Everything's terrific. Oh, my gosh. Everything, this whole idea is awesome and we should do this. Whereas in our space, we have people that go, no, that doesn't work out that way very well at all. Look at the way this is looking. And that is, and, and so there's a dichotomy of, of ideas. You know, there's a yin and yang version of their conversations. There are uh, arguments that happen. You know, not everybody agrees. It's not an echo chamber. You know, it is fostering a lot of, you know, what the author was talking about and creating a space where people do take, you know, that seed and allow us to be that soil where that seed can start to germinate. And that's amazing mm-hmm. to me. And let's, let's shift gears a little bit. I'm, I'm curious. We've been talking a lot about the conservatory, as yeah, we yeah. should. <laughs> but I'm also curious about um, whether you've traveled to other places where great coffee houses are and what are some of those great experiences or stories that you have to share about this. Oh. If you think about your travels, looking at other coffee Hell houses, yeah. um, what are some key examples or memories around those? And, and sure. Why, why were those memorable? Well, like I said, I was in the Navy for 25 years. Um, so I got a chance to go to Europe quite a bit. The Navy doesn't usually pull into where the resort spots are. Um, we usually pull into industrial areas. So those industrial areas have very interesting and eclectic uh, population densities um, where the harder working, you know, the not the jet set types that are just there on, you know, holiday, the normal quote unquote people that go into there. And most sailors would go and the first thing they would do would find, you know, find a bar somewhere. You know, which is a pub is the alcoholic coffee house. I would always go to a place where they serve pastry. I think that a culture with awesome pastry is an awesome culture. Mm. You know, I I like France, Italy, Greece, Portugal. I mean, every country that I visited, I would always go to their coffee house where they had pastry, Mm. you know, or their bakeries. There were uh, several places in France. Uh, We went to Toulon. Uh, We took a train, a couple of my shipmates and I took a train to Avignon, and we ended up going to a a coffee shop there, I remember this distinctly, to have some crepes, because it's France, (laughs) and that's what you do. And I'm a people watcher person, as an artist, as a photographer, I have to be. I guess it's just a byproduct of, of doing that. But I like to watch people and how they react and how they interact in social settings, because their facial structure changes You know, the way they communicate with each other changes when they're out in public than when they were in private. Mm -hmm. And the conversations, even though they were in French, you can get a gist of, you know, that they were talking about things that were very important. And they were 
more plugged into each other, even the younger people were, you know, more apt to sit down, grab uh, some sort of coffee drink and just chat away about their day. And I took a lot from that coming back here and then people watching Americans and how they interacted in our own coffee shops. I was in Virginia at the time, you know, before I came out here. And so the coffee culture out there was not so much non-existent, but very infantile as compared to Seattle. It was amazing to see how much more Americans are plugged into technology than Europeans. Taking The takeaway from my travels was that creating a place where people can plug in if they want to, but creating an environment where they don't want to, mm-hmm. because there's a rich creative influence where they can read a book or look at the artwork that we've got there or whatever would be the point of what I wanted, mm-hmm. you know, um, out of the space was to create a space where people can interact. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what we, you know, that's, that was my take from mm-hmm. the, from my travels was. Yeah. I want to share one place that when, when I was thinking about this question came to mind for me, it's called Cafe Fiorio and it's in Turin and Torino, Italy. And it opened in 1780 and has been active ever since. And it has a front room that's completely marble encrusted. The mm-hmm. counters, mirrors are mm-hmm. framed in marble and the counter has just impeccably attired baristas, you know, yeah. white jackets, yeah. you know, starched down. In the back of the house, however, it's a series of these labyrinthine hallways and they have sumptuous red velvet chairs and divans. And it really is designed to maximize the impulse to linger mm-hmm. or to have close proximity with other people. So when you're sitting in some areas, you could sit almost shoulder to shoulder with somebody who you do not know. But because it is a bit of a maze, there are other areas where you have private, intimate spaces mm-hmm. where you can pretty much go on your own <laughs> or yeah. with your partner and do yeah. things. And it's it's very different from the typically utilitarian and cookie cutter interiors of modern modern day cafes. It allows for that. There's a little bit of that communal spirit, but a little sexiness, a little darkness yeah. in it as well. Yeah. Which I think the conservatory is much smaller than yeah. Cafe Fiorio, but I, I see I see that as well. The little sexy small spaces where people can have their moments as well. Yeah. It does drive people to have that intimate conversation or whatever you know the music that we usually play in there i tend to keep it more benign i guess would be the word to where it, it's not a poppy sometimes i'll do an 80s thing or whatever because i'm in the mood for it and usually i drive the the musical flavor of the afternoon but mo- most of the time it's uh, instrumental um it'll be jazz or it'll be something it's like you know people don't normally gravitate to so then they're not distracted by it it's there It's like a movie, Mm -hmm. you know, you're creating your movie with your significant other or your friend or your family member or whatever, or your, your business partner, you know, that you're trying to get a point across or whatever. Cause I've, I've had people come in, you know, and try to, um, make a point of, uh, a business point, you know, and that, which they could not do in their office for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So they used our space to do that. It's interesting. Maybe it's a narcissist in me, but you're, you're making me think about, um, a lot of us by our very nature are performative in one way or another. So I'll just talk about myself. If I go to a Starbucks and sit around for 30 minutes, I don't feel as inspired or performative as I would if I go in your space and I'm sitting there because I can almost from my mind's eye see myself framed by this beautiful setting. And it gives me a sense of, 
of satisfaction of a certain aesthetic state that I'm in. Mm-hmm. It, it really is a, a, an aesthetic state yeah. that my mindset has been placed in, which is not something that can happen easily in a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons or what have you, obviously. Right. So there is um, something performative in a way about going to a best coffee house. You're not just sitting in an insular state. You are thinking about yourself in the midst of this impeccably designed and really well thought out space. And you are part of that. You're an actor, if you will, mm-hmm. in that space. Just some thoughts I had about Yeah, um, yeah and there. we do have a, a stage you know, for those who are listening, we have a stage in the space. It's got footlights. Uh, my son and I built that stage, put footlights on it, you know, hearkening back to the vaudevillian days of old. We made it so then it looks like it's always been there in that space. And I've had people sheepishly request if they could go on stage and sit on this huge throne that we've gotten from uh, West Hollywood. And it was completely amazing, this chair. It's like a throne. So people love to sit on that throne and get their their photograph taken and you can see their demeanor change when they get up on stage. So yeah, it I I, I completely agree with you. It it is a mm-hmm. space where people do come in and they hold themselves differently after they come into the space, which is interesting to as a people watcher, it's interesting mm-hmm. to see. Yeah, and as we as we wind down our conversation, I'm wondering yeah. if you can think of a memory of some event or some happening, large or small, that mm-hmm. happened in the conservatory that really sticks in your mind and either makes you proud or, or mm-hmm. really crystallizes what the conservatory is all about. Our first New Year's party that we had there was kind of like a, a speakeasy party. It was a, a roaring 20s. It was uh, the year 2013 when we first opened. Actually, we didn't even open it as a coffee house. We we were there as a studio space still. And we had just finished building the stage. And the place was packed, uh, completely packed. We had, and that's where this set the stage for burlesque. You know, that was, an, that was an anchoring moment. And to be honest, we still have a piece of glitter from that New Year's party stuck on the ceiling Good. that I never took down. And it's, it's like a badge of honor. Yeah. So that was defining in so many ways that one particular New Year's uh, event that we had from 2013 to 2014, that it really took the potter's clay that we slapped onto that wheel and started the formation of what we what you've seen now. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's end by having you share how people can learn more about the conservatory. Where can they go online? Mm-hmm. Where can they see the space to get a sense of your vision? And, and where can they track the events that you host? Uh, we do have a web presence. It's uh, the www, and it's uh, theconservatoryseattle.com. And we do have our events page there. As we are, that page is ever-growing and changing. If you go there, you can see our events. We do a calendar for the month. We have past shows and present shows, and we, we're working really hard to do future shows. Uh, that way you can plan better. Uh, we're also, we also have a, a Facebook presence. Uh, we have two pages out there. One that is the conservatory's page for the, the business. And we have a community page in which we post events and we have people who go to these events. Sometimes they'll post their artwork. We encourage that, you know, if people are willing to post their artwork to show there are all levels of artists that come in there, not just, you know, the the most profound and, you know, Michelangelo types, but there are those like myself who can't draw a stick figure to save their lives. We like to see people come in and just enjoy the space. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we're constantly posting you know, other people are constantly posting, um, which is really nice because they add 
to the spirit of the space, mm-hmm. which is exactly what we want. That's great. And, and if you are listening in Seattle, get down to Georgetown, spend a day, spend half of your day in the conservatory and the other half just walking around. It's a wonderful place to be. Yeah. And it definitely is, is one of my favorite spots in the city. So thank you so much for joining me today. My Carlos. pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. On that site, you will find a corresponding article for this episode where you can find more information about the conservatory and links to additional information about coffeehouse history and a short video showing off the conservatory. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place. Thank you.